compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. This morning we are going to begin a new teaching series. So you came at the right time. The teaching series is called Afterlife. What does the Bible say about life after death? And Pastor Jordan on the Spencer campus and myself, we work together each week. And we're going to answer a number of questions that many people have about life after death. But quite honestly, uh, the series isn't long enough to answer all of your questions. So what we've decided to do is at the end of the series, we reserved a week or two, we're going to let you actually determine the sermon. We're calling that the Build Your Own Sermon Sundays. And if you have your um, bulletins, take this out. You'll see a green card. On the green card are some of the questions we expect we probably will not be answering throughout the regular body of the series. But yet you may be interested in hearing what the Bible says on these subjects. So this is what we want you to do. Each week you get to vote. You get to vote for your three favorite questions. Do that sometime this morning. Leave it in the pews. The ushers will pick it up at the end of the service. And next week we'll see how they rank. And you get to vote again. And so we're going to see what rises to the top as the most popular questions you want us to answer, and that is what we will answer in the last week or two of this series, as you get to do this Build Your Own Sermon Sunday. Well, unless Jesus Christ returns, the honest truth is that every single one of us will die. About 53.5 million people die a year. While I'm preaching this sermon, approximately 4,500 people will take their final breath. And while we all know we're going to die, uh, how we die is a mystery to us, isn't it? I did some research this week and found some interesting statistics. Did you know that an average of 150 people die a year from falling coconuts? In fact, more people die from falling coconuts each year than die from shark attacks. So it turns out it's actually safer to be in the water than on the beach. On average, about 450 people die a year from simply falling out of bed. I didn't know that. Bed could be a dangerous place to be. And then my favorite is this. Did you know on the average... 25 people each year die from trying to pop a champagne cork. So your celebration can go completely wrong when that thing finally comes out. So make sure it's not pointing your direction. But while we don't know how we're going to die, it seems as you talk to the average person on the street, there is an equal amount of mystery in their minds about what happens after we die. Most people don't seem to know. Now, this morning, using the Bible as our guide, we're going to glimpse behind death's door. We're going to pull back the curtain a little bit and find out what the Bible says about what happens to each one of us one minute after we die. Now, to be able to give a good answer to that question from the Bible, I need to introduce you to something that sounds like a big term. It's actually not that hard, but I'll explain it to you. The term is called progressive revelation. 
Now, it sounds big and scary, but it's very simple. Progressive revelation simply means this, that God reveals more of himself over time. And like, you don't know everything there is to know about God simply in the book of Genesis. It takes all of the Bible, it takes all of history to be able to learn more about God and his plans for the afterlife. Maybe the simplest way for you guys to think about it is like a dating relationship. You meet somebody, you're real excited to be with somebody, and you think you guys are, are just going to be great friends, but you really don't know one another until time passes. Because as time passes, you'll know more and more about the person and who they truly are. In the same way, if we're going to find out what uh, God says about life after death, we need to look at this over the whole biblical history of time. We need to start in the Old Testament and see what God reveals and then continue to trace our finger into the New Testament. And as we do, the answer to this question about what happens one minute after we die will slowly snap right into focus. So let's begin in the Old Testament, shall we? First word you need to know about life after this is, after, after death is this, Sheol. That is talked about, that's afterlife in the Old Testament. It's the most important word you need to know in the Old Testament about the afterlife. Now, incidentally, the King James did not translate this, old, this Hebrew word consistently or accurately into English when you look at the old King James Bible. Uh, 31 times they translated Sheol as hell. 31 times again they translated Sheol as grave. And then two times they translated it simply as the pit. So what does this Hebrew word Sheol mean? Does it mean hell? Does it mean grave? Does it mean a pit? The King James actually has inadvertently created a lot of confusion about what happens with life after death because of this I would call inaccurate or sometimes misleading translation of this key word they use. So let me just begin to work through some of these things. First thing you need to know, Sheol is not hell, even though the King James translates it, translates it 31 times that way. Hell actually is not in the Old Testament. Hell actually doesn't get introduced to us until the New Testament, it's actually called the lake of fire. <clears throat> it is the final resting place of the devil, the fallen angels, and those who sin apart from Christ and don't have the redemption of Christ. Hell comes at the end of history after people have been judged by Jesus. Technically, nobody is in hell today. Because nobody has yet stood before Jesus for final judgment. So Sheol is not hell. Second thing we learn. Sheol is a place of conscious existence in the afterlife. This is why translating Sheol, as the King James does, into grave can sometimes be very misleading. Because when you put somebody into the grave, that is obviously the end of their body. It decomposes. It goes away. The grave sort of equates in our minds with the end. But Sheol 
is a place of conscious existence of the person after they die. When someone dies, their body goes in the grave, but the Old Testament says their person goes to the place of Sheol. Now, I told you sometimes Bibles translate this a little misleading, and even some modern translations continue to follow the old King James translations, and they inadvertently introduce some misleading things about this word Sheol. For instance, I'll show you the modern NIV. In Genesis 37, 35, it says this, talking about Jacob. All of his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning I will go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Now, the ESV, which is the translation that we use in our pews, one of the reasons I've chosen to use the ESV is the ESV is a a little more literal translation. And when it comes to a word like sheol, which does not have an easy English word to translate it directly across to, they simply use the Hebrew word sheol translated in the English so you know what actually is behind it. Let me show you what it says in Genesis 37, 35. Here in our ESV, as his son, as all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, "No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning." Thus his father wept with him. So we need to know Sheol is not hell. Sheol also is not the grave. Sheol is a place of conscious existence for every person in the Old Testament after they died. But let me tell you more. Sheol was a place for both the righteous and the wicked. Genesis chapter 37, we saw that... uh, Jacob, our our patriarch, he went to Sheol. He's not a perfect guy, but he's sort of the patriarch, which just sort of means we'll just generally say he's the righteous guy. But as you trace your finger throughout the Old Testament, you find also people who are wicked, people who are even being directly judged by God for their wickedness, still go to that same place called Sheol. For instance, Korah, he rebelled against Moses. You remember in the Old Testament? And the earth literally opened up and swallowed him. Where did he go? We find this. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. And the earth closed over them and they perished in the midst of the assembly. So Sheol is the place where people go when they die in the Old Testament. Both the righteous and the wicked went there. Their bodies may be in the grave, but the person was in this place called Sheol. Next thing we learn is this. All who went to Sheol did not have the same experience when they went there. For some, Sheol, we read in the Old Testament, was a place of comfort. For others, we read that Sheol was actually a place of torment. For instance, Job talks about Sheol being a place of pain. He says in Job 26, 5 through 6, The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. But when you go to Jacob, 
and we find out what was Jacob's experience when he went to this same place called Sheol. It was different. He saw it as a, it was seen as a place of reunion with his ancestors who had gone before. Genesis 49, 33 says this, When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Asaph, the ancient psalmist, writes about Sheol not being a place of agony, like Job said, but actually a place where the glory of God was experienced for him. He says in Psalm 73, 24 through 25, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. When you go to verses like Deuteronomy 32, 22, which I just don't have more time to keep putting verses up for you here, let me tell you a little bit about what it seems to talk about when it comes to Sheol. Deuteronomy 32, 22 seems to talk about it, hints at Sheol having two compartments or two places. In that passage of Deuteronomy, it talks about a lower compartment and a upper compartment. In other words, people could have two different kinds of experiences in Sheol, one of agony or one of comfort, because two different kinds of people went to Sheol, the righteous or the wicked. Now, um, while this two-compartment view of Sheol is not explicitly taught in the Old Testament, it's only shadowily hinted at, you do need to know that the ancient rabbis of the day did teach this two-compartment view of Sheol, a place of agony and a place of comfort. And this will be important for us to know as we get our finger into the New Testament. The last thing you need to know about this place of, called Sheol, the place of the dead in the Old Testament, is this. The righteous hoped for rescue from Sheol. Even though Sheol was a place of comfort, it is not a place they hoped to stay. Look what it says in Psalm 49, 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Now, isn't this interesting in the Old Testament what is being talked about? One day, God would ransom his soul from Sheol. One day, God would pay a price to take him out of the place of the dead. Do you see a forecast for Jesus Christ right here? And what Jesus Christ came to do? Well, what we need to know so far is that afterlife in the Old Testament is not really talked about with great detail. It's talked about in shadowy ways. We've seen that people do continue to exist while their bodies are in the graves. Their person continues to exist in this place of Sheol, either in comfort or in agony. But then when we turn the pages a little further and we come into the New Testament, the explanation the Bible gives of what happens to us one minute after we die goes from shadowy and vague to being swung wide open. And many details are given to the answer to this question, what happens after we die? While Sheol is the key word to understand in the Old Testament when it comes to life after death, 
Hades is the key word to understand in the New Testament. Hades is afterlife in the New Testament. Now, you know in the Old Testament was written almost exclusively in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic in there. The New Testament is written in Greek. And if you know a little of your history, extra-biblical history, the Greek Jews were getting a little rusty in their Hebrew at the time. And so they had this idea, why don't we translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek so we could read it and know it. And they did that in Alexandria, Egypt. It was called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was very popular in the days of Jesus. In fact, um, what's interesting is you find that every time in the Old Testament the original Hebrew word Sheol was used, in the Greek Septuagint, when they translated it across, every single time they used the word Hades. So what you need to understand is that the Sheol in the Old Testament and Hades in the New Testament are one and the same thing. Now, I mentioned to you earlier that uh, some modern Bible translations do not translate the word Sheol in the Old Testament over to English accurately. Uh, oftentimes. And that's also true sometimes with some modern Bible translations in it comes to Hades in the New Testament. We learned earlier that Hades and hell are different. Remember, Hades and Sheol are one and the same. Hell is the lake of fire, the final resting place after judgment by Jesus. Sheol and Hades are the temporary resting place of the dead before judgment by Jesus. Now, technically, as we learned, nobody is in hell at this point. But as we look at Hades in the New Testament, what do we learn is, the, is it like for people? First thing we learn is this. There is suffering in Hades. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable to greedy Pharisees. He is teaching them that their experience in this life may be completely reversed when they get to Hades in the next life. And what I want you to understand as Jesus tells this parable is what he is is doing is he was endorsing the rabbinical view of life after death in Sheol and Hades that existed in that time. That is the view that Hades or Sheol had two compartments in it, one of torment and one of comfort. And as I mentioned to you earlier, some modern Bible translations do not translate Hades consistently into English. The ESV that we use just puts Hades right there. But sometimes, like the old NIV, NIV 84, it translates in Luke chapter 16, Hades as hell. And remember, they are different. So, let's go ahead and read Luke chapter 16. And I'm going to read it from the ESV. It says this, speaking about the rich man. And in Hades... Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, 
for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. One minute after the rich man dies, <laughs> while people are beginning to write his eulogy, he is actually in agony. While people are beginning to order the potato salad and, of course, the mutton, not ham, sandwiches for his funeral, he is in torment. It's very clear. Now, look at something else we learn in this passage. The rich man actually, at this point, had a body, and he had a body that could experience pain. He says this, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He didn't pass out of existence when he died, the rich man. He is very much alive. And as I said, he has a body. You noticed he has, first of all, a a memory. He could remember Lazarus, the poor beggar that sat at his gate. He had a finger, or at least Lazarus had a finger. He had a tongue. So what we find is that uh, even after death, we maintain some kind of body. Now, let me clarify things. This is not the resurrection body. Next week, we're actually going to talk about resurrection bodies. This is called the body that we would have, and the Bible theologians call the the intermediate state or the intermediate body, the idea that we still have some kind of corporal existence while we are um, in Hades or Sheol. To give you more details on this, excuse me, I'm getting thirsty. You can think of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration where you had Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus. Remember that? Were they recognizable as Moses and Elijah? Yeah. They had some kind of a body. They do not have their resurrection bodies yet. They have an intermediate state body. These are the kind of bodies that Lazarus has and the rich man has. And it's a body, as we see, that can still experience pain. Third thing we learn... The rich man knew there was no chance for change. It says, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Well, after the funeral of the rich man, his grandchildren have returned to summer baseball. His biological children have returned to work and family. The one person who cannot change is the rich man himself. He remains in agony. And today, 2,000 years later, 
he would still be remaining in agony. There is one change that would be happening to him in the future, though, and that would be the time to stand before Jesus for final judgment and the time when he would be consigned, confined to the lake of fire and to hell. As it's often said, you know, when you die and you move into your eternal state, if you don't like accommodations, you can't pick up your suitcase and move out. This life is what determines our next life. And after death, there is no second chance. Fourth thing we learn from this, he knew the agony he endured was absolutely fair. He said, then I beg you, Father, send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. The rich man was complaining about the pain, but he didn't complain about the justice. What he understood is that he did not want his family to join him there. Sometimes you see these kind of crass marine shirts, you know, and marines die, they just regroup in hell. The idea is that when, at least if I go to hell, I'll be with my friends. That certainly wasn't the rich man's idea. I want to do anything I can so that my friends would not be here. What is the only way to avoid this place of torment? The Bible is clear. Is that we confess our sins to our God, and we trust in Jesus Christ's death on the cross to pay for our sins in full. Otherwise, we face justice. Last thing I want to mention about this place of torment in Hades is this. Apparently, Lazarus knew what he was missing, didn't he? It says, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And I'm, excuse me, I meant to say the rich man knew what he was missing. The point is this. Maybe the greatest agony of all was not the agony he physically endured in his intermediate body, in the agony of the flames, but being able to see Lazarus in the arms of Abraham being comforted and knowing that there is no chance no chance for change. Now, some of you may think that I pulled too many details out of something that is just a parable in Luke chapter 16 about what happens to people when it comes to life after death. But let me remind you, all Jesus did in this parable was to reinforce the current view in his time by the rabbis of what happens with life after death. That everyone went to a place Sheol or Hades, depending on which testament or language you're using. For some, it was a place of agony, and for others, it was a place of torment, based upon choices you had made in this life, specifically, ultimately, which we have done with Jesus. He just reinforced it. He didn't correct it. In fact, other passages in Scripture reinforce this very view. For instance, look at Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment when they would stand before Christ. It's exactly what we just taught. 
Now, uh, we talked about Sheol, we talked about Hades, and we also described the, the place of torment in Hades by looking at the rich man. I, I told you there's the other side, the place of comfort where Lazarus was and the Old Testament saints went to. Let me give you the key word to understand that. That is the word paradise. There was peace and joy also in Hades. We see that Lazarus went to Hades, but he had a very different experience. He had a place of, it was a place of comfort. The Old Testament calls it Abraham's bosom, and by the time you get to the New Testament, it's called paradise. Paradise is a place of comfort. It's a place of companionship on the, in Hades. It's a place of reunion with our ancestors. But there's really not too much more you can say about paradise, which is the one compartment of Hades, because The Bible doesn't give us too much more. And here's why. This is where you really want to listen. What the Bible hints at is that when Jesus died, he went to Hades, specifically to the compartment called Paradise, and Jesus didn't stay there. Jesus left the compartment of Paradise, and ultimately he went back to heaven As we know that, after 40 days, he went to heaven, and after he rose from the dead, and the Bible hints at the fact that he emptied paradise and took the Old Testament saints with him to be home with him in heaven. Let me show you where this comes in the New Testament. First of all, let's look at the thief on the cross. Jesus is dying at this time. What is going to happen when he dies? He says to the thief on the cross, Then he said, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise, which is the compartment of comfort in Hades. But Jesus didn't stay there. The scriptures also say in Acts chapter 2.31, For he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades or left in Hades. But he took the Old Testament saints home to heaven. Look what it says in um, Psalm 16 verse 10 where we find David talking about Christ, but not just talking about Christ, he is also talking about himself. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. David one day expected to have his personhood, his soul, taken out of Sheol and home to heaven. We looked at this earlier. Psalm 49 One day, the psalmist said, that God would play a price to take people out of Sheol, to take people out of Hades, home to heaven, to join them with Jesus in heaven. Psalm 49, 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. The writer of Hebrews, he talks about the Old Testament saints going through some kind of perfection with the New Testament saints. That when Jesus dies and goes home to heaven, he changes things not just for us, but for them as well. Hebrews 11.40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now here's something else that is interesting. We're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. 
And most likely, this is probably a near-death experience uh, when Paul was stoned at Troas. Paul has sort of a a near-death or out-of-body experience where he is brought home to paradise, he says. We know what paradise is. It's the compartment of the righteous, normally in Hades. But we've talked about the fact that the scriptures are hinting that God has emptied the compartment of paradise and brought it home to heaven. And as we look at this, this is after Christ's resurrection, where does Paul say paradise is now located at? Let's read the text. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. The key thing to understanding this verse is what Paul means when he says the third heavens. Let me explain this to you. Biblically, there are actually three heavens, or three ways heavens is used. And Paul was quoting the rabbinical understanding of the day. The first heavens is what we would call the atmospheric heavens. Isaiah 55, 9 through 10 says the rain comes from the heavens, right? Real simple. The second heavens in Scripture would be called the heavens of space. The sun, moon, and stars would be in those heavens. Genesis 1, verse 12, God says, let there be light in the heavens, But the third heavens, according to Scripture, would be the place where God himself dwells. And what does Paul say? I was caught up to the third heavens, the place where God himself dwells. I was caught up to paradise, which is not in Hades anymore, but it is in heaven. And to reinforce that, We know that in the Old Testament, when people died, they went to Sheol, they went to Hades, they went to the place of the dead. But as you put your finger in the New Testament, after Christ's resurrection, what does Paul say happens to Christians when they die? 2 Corinthians 5.8, yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body. And where do we go? At home with the Lord that we as Christians now go directly to heaven, not to paradise. In fact, Jesus reinforces this in Revelation. He says in Revelation 1.18, And the living one, I am the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I unlocked Hades. That's why I am in heaven. So today... If you are a Christian and you die one minute after you die and you close your eyes in this world, you open your eyes in heaven to be with Jesus. To be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present with the Lord, which is better by far. And you know what? The Old Testament saints they will be in heaven with you. Well, what about those who died apart from Christ? Those who die apart from Christ today or those who died apart from Christ in the Old Testament, where are they? They're still in Sheol. They're still in Hades. 
the temporary compartment of the dead, the place where the rich man was in Luke chapter 16, a place of just torment and agony while they wait final judgment by Jesus. Let me answer this question. What is heaven like? Well, I could give you many detailed descriptions of it. I'm not going to this morning because we're going to save that for a future message. But I do want to tell you this. The central feature of heaven is that it boils down to being with Jesus. You know, there'll be all kinds of joys in heaven. There'll be a reunion with our relatives who have died in Christ and gone before us that'll be in heaven. But nothing, nothing compares to the moment when we close our eyes in this life and open our eyes in heaven to see the face of Jesus, to see the smile on his face when he says, I love you. I died for you. Welcome home. I believe, I don't know for sure, but I believe that in heaven we'll be able to look back upon our life and we'll have a much greater comprehension of the depth of our sin. I believe that in heaven we'll also have a much greater comprehension of the incredibly high price that Jesus paid on the cross to free us from our sin. And it wouldn't surprise me that if in heaven, before the final resurrection, in our intermediate state bodies, the day after day, tears go down our face, tears of thankfulness and gratitude to Jesus Christ, because we understand how sinful we are or were and what a great Savior we have who loves us, who died for us, and brought us home to be in heaven while those apart from him are enduring conscious torment in Hades and finally hell that is fully just. There's one other thing I should mention, and that's purgatory. You know, what about purgatory? We never talked about it. You need to understand that Hades is not purgatory. Purgatory is found nowhere in the Bible. Purgatory is actually a Catholic church teaching that came up in the sort of Middle Ages, and it was based originally on a faulty understanding of salvation itself. The idea was, well, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, but do you think he really paid for all of our sins? Certainly, we have to pay for some of them. And so the idea became that when you died, rather than opening your eyes to see Jesus, you died and you suffered for a few years or maybe even a few million years to further and finalize the perfection of your soul. I need to tell you, this is the good news of the gospel here, folks. The Bible says something very, very different. Look what it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, I guarantee you that when you close your eyes in this life 
you will open them to see Jesus in heaven. Not because you are so good, but because Jesus is so good. That he paid for all of our sins so completely and so fully, it's almost impossible to believe. That is why the medieval church invented this whole doctrine of purgatory. Because they could not believe that the good news of Jesus Christ is actually that good. That Jesus paid for it all. While we know the good news of Jesus Christ today, the honest truth is we oftentimes have a hard time accepting it, don't we? We're going through life and we fail big time. And in shame and in guilt, we get on our knees and we call out to Jesus, Jesus, please forgive me. I can't believe for what I did. I failed you miserably again. And Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sins. But what do we do? We erect a little earthly purgatory and we start to punish ourselves as if we could atone for some of what we did. We can't. Only Jesus can atone for it. Or in our relationships with people. Sometimes we're in relationships with other people and they sin against us and they ask for forgiveness and we say, I'm going to forgive you because I've been forgiven. But in that relationship, we erect a little earthly purgatory, don't we? We keep bringing up the past, reminding them of their sin and failures because we sort of get a little morbid, shame, morbid uh, joy in watching them suffer. And in doing that, don't we mock the very sufficiency of what Jesus did on the cross? Jesus said, I died on the cross. I paid for it in full. There is no purgatory at all, no matter what you have done when you have trusted in me. And then when we erect little earthly purgatories in our relationship with others to make them suffer, even though we say, I've forgiven you like Christ has forgiven me, we're mocking the gospel itself. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion. And I want you to know we practice, by the way, open communion. And that means if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we invite you to join us. I'd only ask that when the elements are passed, you would hold them and that we would take them together. While the elements are being passed, there are two things I'd like you to do. First, as you hold the bread and the cup, I want you to worship Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much. No matter what I have done, that when I, because I have trusted in you, because you love me so much, you've paid for it in full, that when I close my eyes in this life, I will open them to see you in heaven in the next. There's no purgatory. Thank you, and I worship you for that. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11 reminds us that we don't just take communion, but we examine our hearts when we take communion. And I specifically want to challenge you to examine your heart in this one area. Have you erected little earthly purgatories in your relationships with other people? That even though you say you've forgiven them, there's times where you bring things up, you make them suffer for what they have done. And inadvertently, we end up mocking the very sufficiency of the gospel itself. That Jesus Christ has paid in full 
and forgiven us completely. And as Christians, that is the way we treat others and forgive others completely and fully with no temporary purgatories where they suffer their shame. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, for giving us a very clear picture of what happens to us one minute after we die. Thank you in one side. I, I thank you that no, no rapist, no thief, no murderer will ever escape justice for their crime. But why I thank you for your justice, even more I thank you for your incredible mercy and grace through Jesus. Thank you for the completeness and fullness, Jesus, of what you have done for us on the cross so we do not die in fear and wondering what happens after we close our eyes in this world because we know that we will see you and your smile and your forgiveness in the next as long as we have trusted you as our Savior. Thank you for free, complete, and full forgiveness. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.